has allowed me to uh, speak again this morning, and I uh, count it a privilege to be before you. Uh, And I'm going to talk about money this morning. And I understand the inherent danger of talking about money. There is the accusation that the church is just interested in your money. And unfortunately, there is more than enough evidence in the United States anyway that that could be a... uh, the sole interest that a church would have in a per individual. But here at Bethel, we make a conscious and a calculated decision not to talk about money much. And in fact, when we receive the offering, we tell guests, people who are here for the first time, we don't want you to give. That giving, unless you want to, of course, but giving is something that is um, the, the privilege of those who call Bethel Church their home. And in the 21 years that I have been a pastor here, Bethel has never experienced an extended financial crisis. Never. So I really believe that God has honored our decision not to make money the focus of our ministry, the focus of our time. God, through the generosity of his people, have provided for the financial needs of this church. So we don't talk about money very often. But the scriptures are not that shy about talking about money, not talking about what we possess. Jesus, who did not have a place to call his own, in fact, someone came to him and said, Lord, I want to follow you. And he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has no place to lie his head. So, Jesus, who did not possess much, talked a lot about our possessions because he understood something about them, is that they can capture our hearts and they can become the sole purpose for which we live. Jesus knew about the effects that money, wealth, and possession had upon his people. So this morning, I'm going to talk about money. And I'm going to talk about money in the context of living generously. Last week, I spoke about the generosity of God. God has been incredibly generous to all of us. He has given us life. Every breath that we take, every beat of our heart is dependent upon the generous attention of our God. We are contingent beings. We are contingent upon his activity in creation and in our lives in general. We also saw that God's generosity has been exhibited to us and that he's he's concerned about us as individuals. While we were in our mother's womb, God was at work crafting us to create us to be the individuals and people that we are. The skills and the talents that we have are because of God's activity and purposes in our life, even when we were in the womb. And God's generosity is also expressed in this church. I look at an incredibly gifted group of people, people who have been gifted by God, the Holy Spirit, to serve, to minister. And lastly, last week, we looked at the generous gift of God in his son. For God so loved the world that he gave. And I believe he gave the most valuable thing he possessed, his only unique son. That as we place our faith in him, we are given eternal life. So we serve, we come before to worship an incredibly generous God this morning. And I think because of his generosity, we have been called to be generous as well. 
And I understand that being generous doesn't refer to just doesn't refer only to your bank account. I understand that. God has given us time, and many of you are generous in your time. You serve in Sunday school, you serve in Awana, you serve in various ways within this church. That God has also been generous as He has given us talents. And I serve with a great, great group of people who are talented that use that talent to generously serve this church. So I understand when we talk about generosity or when I talk about generosity, we're not just referring to our checkbook or what's in our back pocket. But this morning, that's going to be the focus. So the question is, what does generosity look like? How much should we give? And the stock answer has always been, well, that's easy. We ought to tithe. That's what the Bible says. And understand that when we use the word tithe, it has a very specific meaning. It means 10%. One-tenth of your income, that's a tithe. A tithe has not, as in our culture, has almost become what you put in the offering plate. That's your tithe. But understand that when the Bible talks about tithe, it's talking about 10%, not just whatever. And there is a precedent in the Old Testament, even prior to the giving of the law, And I can see everybody's going, so we're going to get a sermon on tithing. Actually, you're not. This is not a sermon on tithing. Uh, But that's where we're going to start. Because that's usually the standard. That's the standard, isn't it? I mean, if, you know, in in years past, you go to a pastor, how much should I give? Well, you should tithe. I'm going to argue that the Old Testament tithe has been done away with. So to ease sort of your, so you can go, oh, phew. But even prior to the giving of the law, the tithe was put was in place. There was aspects of it. Abraham, after he had defeated the uh, uh, the armies on the plain, and was met by Melchizedek, this sort of mysterious king of Salem, priest before God. Abraham gave him a tithe of the spoils of war. Jacob, when he encountered God at uh, the place he named Bethel, where we derive the name of our church, the place that God was. Uh, where he saw the angels ascending and descending on the ladder and had that encounter, uh, Jacob pledged 10% of everything he had to this God. So there must have been a cultural, uh, at least a a Mideastern cultural value of tithing. So, but when we come to the law, the law required, and Andrew, am I just not pushing this? There we go. Tithes 10% was a requirement of the law given to the nation of Israel. They were not optional. They were commanded. And I want to look at some uh, passages. And I, I, I only have the, the recitate or the cite the citations. Whoops, got to go back one. Citations there. I didn't print them all out this morning for you because they're quite lengthy. So what I'm going to try to do is summarize them. In Leviticus and in Numbers, a tenth of the land of what the land and the livestock produced. So a tenth of their crops, their fields, and a tenth of their livestock was given to the Levites. And this is what's found in this passage. Because the Levites had no allotment of land. So they had no means by which to support themselves. They couldn't go out and have a flock. They couldn't go out and grow, have a garden. Their job and their allotment was the temple, was the tabernacle, was God himself. So to support them, the nation of Israel was required, wasn't optional, it was commanded, to give 10% to the Levites. 
And if, and it was, uh, actually it's, uh, it's sort of an interesting picture. When it came to your flock, you would just, you would have your, your let's say you had a, a herd of a, or a flock of a hundred sheep. You would just sort of line them up and they would go under the rod. And every tenth one that went under the rod went to the Levites. Now you might have your prime ram go under the rod and you could redeem it. You could redeem that prime ram but it cost you 20% more. So if he was worth $100, you had to pay $120 to get him back. But they were, since the Levites were dependent upon the nation to supply their needs, the nation, the rest of the people, tithed to the, to the tribe of Levi. It was to support the priests who served within the tabernacle. So if, if the tithe is the basis for giving and the Old Testament tithe is the basis for giving, you give 10%. But there's more. So this, let's say this is the Levitical support tithe or Levitical support tax. The second is found in Deuteronomy. And um, there are various terms for this. The festal tithe, the tithe of uh, rejoicing. I call it the party tithe. Because there was an additional tithe that was set aside for the individual, for the family, that so that when they went to celebrate in the city of Jerusalem, they had the resources to come before the Lord and rejoice. And in fact, in, the, to, in, in, in this way, they were to learn to revere the Lord always. So you were, if you're looking at the Old Testament as the basis of giving, you were to set aside 10%, and we're not going to quibble here, because now you're down, if you, if, you, if you give the Levites 10%, you're down to 90%. So this tithe could have been, I guess, if you really want to sharpen your pencil, is a 9% tithe because you only have 90% left. But let's just assume that the two tithes were equal. You were to set that aside so that when you went to Jerusalem, you could celebrate, you could have a great time honoring the Lord. And And if your tithe was too large, you could sell it. Like if you had large flocks and large quantities of grain or produce and you didn't want to take it to Jerusalem, you could sell it and take the money and then buy the party supplies once you got there. So you've got 20% going out right now. And every third year, and this is found in Deuteronomy 14 as well, okay, Andrew, I don't know if it's my battery. Every third year, a tithe of the produce was to be stored in the town so that those who were destitute would have a place where they could eat and be satisfied. So if you accumulate that over a span of three years, you were to give another tithe. So if the rationale for tithing is found in the Old Testament, is based upon teaching in the Old Testament, then we are... Ought to be prepared. Oh, I forgot this one. Leviticus. Leviticus 1 through 7. There are various offerings that the Israelites were commanded to bring as well. Uh, There was the fellowship offering. There was the cereal offering. There was the peace offering, the burnt offering, the guilt offering, the drink offering. So, if the Old Testament is the basis for our giving, is the basis upon which we call for a tithe, then this is where we better be. We better be prepared to give at least 
0.3%. And if you add in all the offerings, let's just round it off to 30%. So if the Old Testament is the basis for our giving, 10% is not going to cut it. 30% is what's going to be required of us. And in fact, in Malachi, I don't have this in, the, in your handout, but in Malachi 3, 6 through 12, it says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. There were those that would come to this passage and goes, if you don't tithe, you're robbing God. But if you read the rest of the passage... You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will be not enough there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, and all the nations will call you blessed. For yours will be a delightful land. Here the passage is calling withholding the tithe is tantamount to robbing God. And when a person doesn't, the curses that are found in the book of Deuteronomy will fall upon them. So what do we do with this as we transition to the New Testament? And I want to say this. There is no reaffirmation of the law of the tithe found anywhere in the New Testament. The tithe that is found in the Old Testament was directed towards the nation of Israel for very specific purposes. The tithe was directed so that the Levites might be supported. The tithe was directed at that those could remember the goodness of God. And the tithe was directed at caring for those who were destitute. And it is not repeated in the New Testament in any way, shape, or form. We have been set free from the law. We have been released from it, according to Romans 7, 6. Pastor Eric, it's a very, if if you've listened to what Pastor Eric has has said the last two or three sermons, he has has directly spoken about this. And it is a bold statement that we are no longer under the law. The requirements of the law that are not reaffirmed in the New Testament, we no longer bear that burden. We have been set free and we have been empowered by grace to live a life that pleases God. Not based upon performance of a standard, set standard. It's the same in our giving. We are not required to give 30%, 20%, or 10%. If you have been uh, pressed down By your failure to give 10%, let me release you of that burden this morning. Okay? Let me release you of that burden. We're going to look at what I believe the New Testament, the New Covenant tells us is our our responsibility. How how our giving is to be formed. But it is not 10%. But Jesus has a radical call. Look at his radical call and his commentary on giving. There we go. The first is found in Luke 18. 
A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus begins this conversation to sort of focus this, this teacher's, this ruler's uh, attention on who Jesus really is. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God. There, it, it should have gone off in this guy's mind that Jesus is making a claim here that's fairly radical. But Jesus goes on, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not give false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the teacher responds. I mean, he had a fairly high view of himself. All of these things I have kept since I was a boy. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. So this guy comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer is follow the commandments. The ruler's response is, hey, man, I am perfect. 100% done it all my life. So Jesus goes, well, there's one thing you still have to do. And Jesus didn't say you got to give 10%, 20%, or 30%. He says, sell everything that you have. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then you shall have treasure in heaven. I can just imagine the disciples. And Jesus calls his disciples after this dialogue over, and he and his followers talk about one another. But I can just imagine the conversation that Peter might have with the rest of the disciples going, you remember when I went to Jesus and asked him, how many times should I forgive someone? And I was really generous and said, seven times, seven. And Jesus said, oh no, seven times 70. He goes, let's not talk to him about giving because if we come up with 10%, Jesus is going to go, not 10%, but 10 times 10%. And we are in a world of hurt. Jesus' call to this individual was radical. And I understand that this is a unique conversation with a particular individual who loved his stuff. He he went away sad because he had lots of stuff. But still, Jesus' call was 100%. And if that's not, this is, this, I'll tell you, this passage, I have just been thinking, these are two parallel passages uh, in Mark and Luke. But this one has been one that I've just been sort of chewing on. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. There was in the, what was called the court of the women, Uh, in the temple complex in Jerusalem, there were 13 sort of giving stations. Um, Some were uh, for, there were four chests for free will offerings, wood, incense, and uh, temple decorations. And so the rest of them were for, um, if, if you couldn't bring a sacrifice, you could, You could redeem it and then give the money that you would have gotten from the sacrifice. So there were 13 places to give money in the temple uh, or the court of the women. So Jesus apparently was sitting across from one of these uh, offering uh, receptacles. And he watched the crowds putting their money into the treasury. Many rich people threw in a large amount. And it could be that many rich people came and gave a lot of money a large amount. They could have come and given a large amount of coins. Uh, and, you know, as well as I do, if you pull, stick your hand in your pocket, you may have a quarter, a nickel, a dime, and a penny. Uh, if you throw in a bunch of quarters, it's one thing. You throw in a bunch of pennies, it's another. 
So you sort of get the sense that a lot of people are coming, throwing in a lot of pennies just to make it sound good because they were brass receptacles that they were thrown into. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. So this woman in the court of the women came in. Instead of making a whole lot of noise when her offering went in, there were two very quiet tinks as her two coins went into the receptacle. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this poor woman has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, and she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Now, my, I'll, I'll tell you, my first question is, okay, if she put in all she had to live on, then how is she going to eat the next day? Has she suddenly become a welfare widow where she's going to be dependent upon the social safety net of the temple at the time? Jesus really doesn't deal with that question, doesn't, doesn't address that answer. There was a social safety net embodied in the law, but given Israel's track record, when she put everything that she had to live on, in the temple treasury. She did it as an act of worship, as an act of absolute trust and faith. And Jesus commends her for it. Commends her for it to the degree that uh, uh, that Mark and Luke decided to include it in their gospel so that she would be memorialized 2,000 years after she committed the act. So let me ask you this, because this is the question I've been sort of wrestling with, and, and I haven't come to any conclusions. Renee and I talked about this. I go, what would you think if I came home and I said, we're going to empty all of our retirement accounts, we're going to take uh, our savings account, and we're going to take our checking account, and we're going to give it away? What would you think of that? My first question was, how are we going to eat the next day? How am I going to make the mortgage payment? I haven't come to a conclusion. I haven't done anything, to be quite frank. But this is what challenges me in Jesus' relationship to giving. He tells one guy, give it all away. I know it was a specific individual, a unique time. And he commends another woman for giving it all away. Something that, as we think about giving, ought to inform. Ought to inform it as we think about it. So what does giving under the new covenant look like? And this, uh, you're more than welcome to read through the passages in, in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. For this is really where the Apostle Paul lays out for us the teaching on giving. Um, giving, and understand this, and this is important. Giving is a response to the grace of God at work within our lives. Giving is empowered by God's grace. If we are generous people, if at the end of this sermon, and as you sort of chew on it, six months from now, if you have become a person who is more generous, it is because God is at work in your life, changing us to be more like Jesus. We can see the generosity of the triune God. But it is only as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work within us can we imitate 
that generosity. It is because God works within it. Not because I'm standing up here this morning talking about money. That would never, at least I hope it's not. I hope you leave with, I hope you leave this morning. If you've been carrying a burden, I'm not a tither, oh, I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I hope you leave with that burden lifted. But I also hope that you leave with the conviction that as God's grace works within us, as God's grace works within me, I can become a generous person. That's the only way it's ever going to happen. One of the reasons we don't talk about money, we don't want you to give under compulsion. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Little bit. We want you to give freely and generously because God's at work within you. But here are some principles I find in giving under the new covenant. The first is it ought to be regular. And let me let me take one step back here. Um, I, underst- I understand that as a congregation, and, and it's true in my own personal life, all the money that Renee and I give to charitable giving doesn't come here, doesn't go here. Not, it all doesn't go here. There are uh, individuals that we support. There are ministries that we support as well. So, so I, when, we're to, when we talk about regular giving, we're not talking only about regular giving here. I understand that. We are not asking, I am not asking, that, uh, that your giving be solely directed at Bethel Church. Understand that, please. Uh, but one of the principles of giving found under the New Covenant is that it ought to be regular. In 1, Corinthians 16, in 1 Corinthians 16, it says on the first day of the week, an offering is to be collected. That was, the, that was the regularity. Now, for some of us, it might be every other week. It might be twice a month. For some of you, especially who, live, who work in industries that you have a very short window and you don't know how much money you've made until that window closes. I think about miners, construction workers, and stuff like that. It may you give semi-annually. But... It ought to be regular, whatever, whatever is regular for you. And part of that regularity says that to me, says to me, is that it ought to be planned. So what's your plan for giving? Is your plan for giving, oh, here comes the offering plate. Oh, what's in my wallet? Oh, I got to go out for dinner. Well, there's this much. That's my plan. That's not a plan. That is spontaneous giving. That is planless. But our giving ought to be regular. And we are pretty cognitive around here. I mean, we are a church that focuses on the word and we try to preach it in a way that, um, uh, that makes sense. So we don't rely upon uh, emotional appeals here. We don't come before you. We do try to make you aware of where we are. If you look in the communicator that you have, there is a line there that shows what the giving was last week, what the, our budget, you know, we divide our budget by 52 weeks and we sort of tell you where we are. I think we're about $22,000 behind budget. But we don't come to you and go, oh, no, we're $22,000 behind budget, please give. We don't do that. We don't. We don't. And we never will. Because we want you to have a plan. We want your, your, plan, your, your giving to be regular, and we want it to be planned. We assume that you have a well-prayed and thought-out plan for regular giving, be it weekly, monthly, or semi-annual. But it ought to be regular. It ought to be universal. Again, in 1 Corinthians 16. Okay, Andrew, I'm, is it the battery in this? Okay. I, I, I won't use it anymore because I'm about to throw it.
Uh, it's universal. It says, let each of you. There is the expectation that as followers of Christ that we give. Giving are, is not just for those who have a significant disposable income. Remember, it is not the amount that counts. The widow gave how much? Two cents. Two small coins. And Jesus praised her giving. But there is the expectation. The New Testament has the expectation. The New Covenant has the expectation that you give. If God has been generous to us, may his grace work generosity within us. And um, there is the expectation that it's proportional. And I love the NIV. Uh, when I first got saved in 1972, I think the, the New Testament, NIV New Testament came out around 75. And I glummed onto that thing, and that's what I've been reading ever since. Uh, it's this, but this, this particular uh, uh, translation in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, where it says, in keeping with his income, that's a really bad translation. It really is. Because um, it uses a verb where income is a noun. It conveys the thought, but there is an underlying, and I, I, I very seldom pull out the Greek going, oh, the Greek really says this. But th- there is it, the verb is in the passive. So what the Apostle Paul is saying in, if, when he talks about in proportion to your income, give according to your income, NIV, is really in, in according to how you have been prospered. And it comes back to the whole idea is that if we have stuff, if we have wealth, if we have the ability to give, it's because God has prospered us. Yes, we might work hard. Yes, we might put in long days. And yes, there might be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears involved in it. But let me tell you, ultimately, the foundation of what we have comes from God. As God has prospered us, that is how we should give. We don't all give the same amount. It would be very interesting. I've been reading a book, and I'm going to cite it near the end. It was called Giving to God. What would you think if you came in the foyer this morning and went through a turnstile? Or there was a ticket taker there going, what we've done is that we've taken our budget, we've divided it by 52, and then we've divided it by 650. Because that's our attendance... Everybody, if, if you do that with everybody on the rolls, between 650 and 700 people. So basically, every person that walks through this door on a Sunday morning should cough up about 30 bucks. That's what the budget costs divided by the people. How many of you would turn around? I probably would. But that's the reality of it. If we were to all give an equal amount, just to support the budget, it'd be about $30 per person per Sunday. So I can see you guys calculating, boy, I have four kids. Yikes. <laughs> I have six kids. Oh, But that's the reality. But that's not what the scriptures tell us to do. As we have been prospered. So we all don't give the same. We're all in different financial places. Again, I'll, I'll come back to the reality, the fact that I'm not talking about just giving here. I'm talking about giving in general. We're all in different places. Some of us have uh, have uh, 
parents that we help support. Some of us have children that we help support. That, that is factored into how we give. There are those who make more money. Those who make more money, guess what? You should give more. That's the reality of it. As God has prospered you, you should give more. Those, in different, in, those who are in different life circumstances may be able to give more, may have to give less. But giving is proportional to how God has prospered you. It's a little different. Uh, in Jesus' day, there was the temple tax. And everybody was required to give the same amount, regardless of how much money you made. The Apostle Paul frees us from that temple tax. We are to give proportionally. We're also to give freely. Give what you've decided to give. If you have decided I'm going to give 10%, guess what? The tithe is what you ought to give. But if you decide that you want to give 30%, that's what you ought to decide. But I will tell you this, that how much you decide to give is between you and God. There are no set percentages or amounts. We will never, we will never here at Bethel Church twist your arm to give. Because we recognize something that's very valuable about you. And we honor you in this. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And you take your direction and your marching orders from him, not from us. So you are to give freely. We are to give, this is a quote, we are to give all that we can to meet as many needs as we can in order to glorify God as much as we can. We are to give freely. We're to give joyfully. If you are giving to a degree that you give it grudgingly and can't do it with joy, you may be giving too much. You may be giving too much. God, the Apostle Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. There is joy that comes from finding that what God has given us is able to bring him honor and glory. And we ought to give it joyfully. There ought to be smiles on our faces when the offering plate comes by as we write the check to an institution that we value and that we uh, support. There ought to be joy that accompanies that as we help someone who's in need. For God loves the cheerful giver. And then finally, we should give sacrificially. Second Corinthians says, and I, and I want to read this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the backstory is that the church in Jerusalem was undergoing, or the, actually the city of Jerusalem was undergoing a famine. They were in desperate need. Uh, the churches of Asia Minor had, had uh, decided, or the Apostle Paul had asked the churches of Asia Minor to contribute to the, to the needs of those people. So that's the backstory. In 1 Corinthians uh, 16 and in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul is sort of working through that. And that's where most of these principles are taken from. But listen to this. Now, brothers and sisters, we want to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the Macedonian church, listen to their circumstances. In the midst of their very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich 
generosity. This, the churches of Macedonia were not affluent churches. The churches of Macedonia didn't have, you know, big, big, uh, what is it when there's money set aside to do something with? Endowments. They were, uh, they were encountering overwhelming and extreme poverty. But this is what the Apostle Paul says about them. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. I think there is a principle of sacrifice that has to accompany what, how, we, how we factor and what we give. What we give should impact how we live. How much we give should force us to make decisions about what we do. When we sacrifice, then there is a cost associated with the fact that we give. David wanted to offer a sacrifice before the Lord in in, uh, 2 Samuel. And he comes to a threshing floor of an individual and the, the individual goes, I'll give you the threshing floor for, for the wood. I'll give you the animals for the sacrifice. And David goes, I'm not going to give anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. That is a principle that needs to be factored in as we think about what we give. What, is the, what does it cost us to make a contribution? What does it cost us to give this money to this ministry? What does it cost us to support Bethel Church? If you don't feel it, it's not a sacrifice. And in closing, I've been reading a book called Giving to God. And there are three different aspects of giving that I've been chewing upon that are found in this book. I want to Make sure you know it comes from him. That number one, giving is an act of worship. It's an expression of love and devotion to a God who is generous. Giving is an expression of our faith. If everything that we have, if God gives us the ability to create wealth, it is an expression of faith as we give it back. It comes from him. And finally, it's a discipline for spiritual growth. For in giving, we affirm one thing very strongly, that our life does not consist in how much we own. That is, the, uh, that is sort of the, the mantra of the culture in which we live. He who dies with the most toys, what? Wins. I like the one that says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) But the reality is we live in a culture that puts ultimate value on what we own, how big our bank accounts are. When we give as a discipline for spiritual growth, we affirm that our life consists more than the abundance of our possessions. So let me ask you this this morning. Do you give freely? As God has prospered you, are you giving? Do you have a plan for it? And do you give sacrificially? It's a challenge for me. As Renee and I factor what we give, 
I hope is a challenge for you as well. Let's pray. God, I am amazed at what you have given us. The resources of time and of talent and also of treasure. May what we do with the financial resources, with the stuff that you have given us, may it bring you glory and honor. May we be characterized as people of generosity as we meet the needs within this body and as we meet the needs of a watching world. Help us to use the money that you have given us for your good, or for your honor and our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.